Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Tuesday, and Tom Brady has officially retired. I suppose we could devote the entire podcast to discussing that. Uh, Dana Milbank. Dana Milbank joins me, nationally syndicated columnist for the Washington Post. Uh, by the way, thanks for coming back on the podcast. It's a great pleasure to be with you, Charlie. Okay, so I'm a Green Bay Packer fan, but I, I think that th- there's no real way to argue that Tom Brady's not the greatest of all time. I, it, it pains me to say it. I want to not like the guy, but you can't make the case unless you want to. No, I just I, the only risk here is that just because he's confirmed his retirement doesn't mean that <laughs> he will in fact be retired tomorrow or the That's next right. day or the day after that. So uh, he has he may have future seasons yet to. Uh, uh, disprove the, the thesis, but well, that's uh, true. Well, yeah. you know, we we went through that with the whole Brett Favre on again, off again, mm-hmm. cheerfully and showing up someplace else. Right, but right. I I don't know. It's uh, it's been a a wild and crazy ride, uh, and he retires at the end of arguably what's so far been the most exciting playoff football, pretty much ever. Are you a football fan? I'm. I'm well, so I grew up a, a New York Jets fan, and that it might have, it might have poisoned me against <laughs> against the whole the whole thing. And of course, you know, living in Washington, you have a the very difficult uh, position of wanting to root for the Washington football team, but against its owner. Um, so I've been having I've been wrestling with that a great deal. So no, it, it's really quite difficult. So one of our listeners just sent me a quote that I probably should have used um, in my newsletter today, um, my my palate cleanser newsletter today about uh, Thomas Massey's latest incredibly stupid tweet. Uh, Somebody sent me Hanlon's razor, which is, of course, never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by stupidity. Mm hmm. And that that that's that's a good reminder. I'm talking about Thomas Massey, the crazy uh, Republican from Kentucky, who tweeted out what he thought was a Voltaire quote. You know, <laughs> I mean, this is so so good. You mustn't question Fauci for he is science. And then he has this Voltaire quote alleged: "To learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are. Not allowed to criticize." Okay. <laughs> and then there's this big hand coming down on you know free thinking Joe Rogan podcast listeners or something like that. Well, you can't make this up. As you know, it's not Voltaire. Voltaire never said anything like this. The mm-hmm. quote actually comes from this guy named Kevin Strum, who's a neo-Nazi who pleaded <laughs> guilty in 2008 to possession of child pornography. So it's this trifecta of of just pure awfulness. And he was referring to the Jews and everything. So uh, Thomas Massey. Because <laughs> usually yeah. these quotes are, you know, mistakenly attributed either to Martin Luther King yeah, right. or Oscar Wilde or Mark Twain. But now to go for the, to, to go straight to the Nazis, that's brilliant. Well, it is. And, you know, you can just see Thomas Massey sitting around, you know, who once bragged about being the craziest son of a bitch on the ballot going, <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm going to show my education by <laughs> quoting the French philosopher Voltaire <laughs> and he ends up with a Nazi pedophile. He and his colleagues have made a career sort of misquoting the, the framers and the founders. So, but uh, this is a new, this is a new element. I'm, uh, it I'm, is. I'm glad you've highlighted it. And, and, and the fun part of course, is that he hasn't taken it down yet. 
because he's not. It, he, no. he, he probably thinks Voltaire is a neo-Nazi. Well, that's right. And, and, <laughs> and look, you, you just can't apologize these days, right? And, and you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene's going to come in and defend him, and he's probably going to raise money sure, uh, about sure, all no. of this. But I, I've, I feel the need to search out these nuggets these days because otherwise your head would explode. So speaking of that, before we get into whole, you know, the what we're learning about the Trump coup, the former president just put out a statement a few minutes ago. Uh, calling on the January 6th committee to investigate Mike Pence. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, just I'm sure they'll well, take that one right up. <laughs> so let's let let's back into that though. I loved your piece about the blizzard of snowflakes in the red states. The, your 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 latest column, your column from from Friday in the Post discusses the whole thought police problem. Which, uh, since we're talking about neo Nazis and Nazis and everything. Uh, talking about this rural county in uh, Tennessee that last week banned Mouse, the Pulitzer Prize winning graphic novel by Art Spiegelman, mm -hmm. uh, which teaches kids about the Holocaust by portraying Jews as mice and Nazis as cats. And and it was apparently that was not the disturbing part for the uh, school board folks in Tennessee. That wasn't it. Was there were some uh, na naughty words. It, yes, it was the it was the naughty words, and I think there was some ma mouse nudity or <laughs> something else that they found ob objectionable. So this may be another case of uh, uh, somebody bumbling into something rather than doing it out of malice. But I thought it was terrific that now they're afraid of cats and mice. And you know, it was almost exactly a hundred years ago that Tennessee had the problem with Darwin's monkeys. So I, I pointed out that it does not appear that the uh, the volunteer state is evolving. <laughs> we, we seem to be right back where we were a uh, hundred years ago. We're now talking about banning books. and But I, I suppose it's progress. We've well, I, I, banning mice instead of monkeys. I, I, as you point out, and this is the state that once celebrated Davy Crockett, now is afraid <laughs> of a cartoon mouse exposing kids to you know, bad language. I mean, you really can't get more snowflakey than that, right? Yeah, it's tragic, so. but you know what's going to happen now. You're going to be accused of being a, an elitist for pointing out that the gentleman from Kentucky has gotten Voltaire <sighs> wrong, right. and I'm going to be exposed as an elitist for pointing out that uh, Tennessee has been a little bit backward of late on the whole evolution thing. Yeah, well, apologies to David French, who actually lives there. I, I, I think <laughs> in in this county, you might be considered an elitist because you've actually read a book. So I'm okay. Here we here we go. So, oh, I mean, we're in yeah, trouble. But I mean, there have been these 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 book bans. You know, Toni Morrison's been banned in St. Louis. Margaret Atwood, The Handmaid's Tale, was uh, banned in a suburb of Wichita. Mm -hmm. appropriately enough, as, as well as, as other books. Um, so you, you, you did a little research on this. I mean, how widespread is this, this, I mean, the, we get the anecdotes, but how, how serious is this as a problem? Well, so a couple of, a couple of points on that. So I talked to the American library association, uh, they counted, uh, between 300 and 400 in just three months. Uh, uh, they didn't have December yet. So it was, uh, September, October, November of last year. That is roughly the um, the same amount from an entire year in 2019. 2020 is kind of skewed because of the pandemic and schools were closed. Uh, so we're now uh, at the uh, four times the pace of these book bannings uh, or attempts at banning. Uh, and at the same time, we've got 
uh, 10 states now, uh, some states have done more than one law, so there's 12 of these, you know, sort of gag laws or memory laws saying you may not teach history in thus and such a way. And, you know, generally it's, uh, or, or often it's phrased as if it is, it makes any uh, student feel uncomfortable, which I, I think can be read as any white student feeling uncomfortable. So then, you know, in a state like Virginia, where uh, the governor can't get that through the legislature, he's instead got a hotline saying, you know, call and report on a teacher if they're saying anything divisive. So I, these things are, are much more dangerous than an one isolated rural county banning one book from the library because how many people does that affect but there's this you know this crazy uh, chilling effect uh, going on i mean if you're a teacher you're just going to stay away from any you know why would you discuss slavery why would you discuss civil rights you're just you know you know asking for well, especially uh, with there's a tip a tip line you know and that's the as, as, as we enter into uh, Black History Month, if you if you are a teacher, you really do have to sit down and go, okay, what what can I say about Reconstruction? Right. Uh, yeah. You know, how, how how much of the history just sort of has to be rah rah, and what about the ugly parts? What what if uh, telling some of the ugly parts uh, makes people feel uncomfortable? Now, this is the point that I really liked that, that you made though that it feels like like five minutes ago that that people on the right were howling about ultra-sensitive snowflakes and cancel uh, culture when woke activities... And, yeah, I mean, yeah. let, and let's be honest, they weren't entirely wrong No, not at all. Uh, <laughs> you know, they were, you know, I mean, the, you know, the, the Confederate statues are, are, are one thing, but, you know, people were going after... Uh, uh, books as well. You know, I think the sort of woke movement on the left wanted to, uh, you know, like, I mean, there were movements and I think there still are, you know, to get rid of, uh, to kill a mockingbird or something. Yeah. Uh, and that goes too far. Um, so, but what's happened now is, you know, in, in the name of, you know, stopping these snowflakes on the left, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a monstrous, you know, uh, New England sized uh, nor'easter uh, that is, you know, much worse than the problem it, it purported to, uh, to be solving because now you've got this much more dramatic chilling effect. So I, I've actually, because as you mentioned, it's Black History Month, I've decided, well, what do they want people to teach? So I'm going back to the 1970s textbook from Virginia, and I'm going to just excerpt it as much as I can about the benevolent master. Oh, no, um, really? Yeah, but I mean, this isn't, you know, this isn't the 18... 80s. This was the 1970s when this was being taught. So, um, I mean, I, I suppose uh, if the goal is not to make any any white student uncomfortable, you can tell them all about the benevolent uh, slaveholders. You know, you, you mentioned when conservatives were making fun of the snowflakes. I mean, there were some pretty good stories out there about the, the colleges that would uh, that were uh, so concerned about uh, the, the fragile students that if a speaker, a controversial speaker came on yeah. campus, they would actually have like rooms, remember, where they would they would mm -hmm. go and they would play with teddy bears and stuff. And they would, <laughs> I mean, they were, they were, I'm not making this up. They would actually like have place, safe spaces where you could go and you could draw on, on cardboard. I don't know what it was, but it was, it was, it was ridiculous. And now it's flipped around. You know, we, we had no, this we debate. Need we need therapy animals for everybody. Therapy now. animals. So we do have a debate about what constitutes cancel culture, what constitutes mm -hmm. uh, infringement on, uh, you know, free speech. I mean, there are gray areas where holding people accountable for their words. Uh, mm -hmm. Is that an infringement on free speech or is that just part of what uh, of accountability? But in your column, you quoted the head of uh, this free speech group, Penn, saying that, you know, when you think about the hierarchy of infringements on free speech, there's no question legislative prohibitions on ideology are at the top of the list. I mean, that's kind of 
there's a there's a line there, right? When the law says you cannot, you, you know, use these books or these ideas, that that seems to be pretty clear stuff, right? Because because it's backed up by the power of the state, so it affects everybody uh, across the state, and it's generally, I think, at least in half cases, it's backed up by um, some sort of a mandatory punishment. So you know, not only do they you know slap your wrist and say you shouldn't do this, you could be fired or or have some other penalty brought against you. I mean, uh, b- between what began with the woke left and what uh, has been finished with the snowflakes on the right, I mean, the ones who are suffering here are the kids. I mean, I thought the whole idea of an education is to be to be able to confront difficult issues that where that do divide people, and you got to figure out what the what the right answer is, or maybe there's some right on uh, both sides. But the, the whole point of, is, you know, what ha- whatever happened to the Socratic argument as being the way uh, that people learn. Now we must not be challenged in any way. I mean, all this this is going to result in is just dumbing down uh, America's children. Well, and it already has. So when you wrote about the the tip line in Virginia, I thought that I, I had not known about this before. The sort of the big helping of hypocrisy from uh, Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia, who apparently didn't mind if some kids got an anti-racist education as long as they were his own kids. Yes. So he was, um, he was I, tell me, that. tell me about that story because this is interesting because he had taken this really uncompromising position that I'm going to protect all children from any kind of this propaganda. But it turns out that his uh, his own kids have a right. rather different educational standard. Right. So all four of his kids have gone to uh, what what are called the the cathedral school. So uh, NCS, a national cathedral school for girls, is where his uh, daughter went, uh, and his three sons uh, went to Saint. Albans, which is, you know, its brother school also under the uh, Episcopal Church. Uh, one of them uh, uh, moved on to Georgetown Prep, which I, th- well, I think was mm-hmm. Brett Kavanaugh's school, right? Yeah. Um, um, but uh, so somebody else has raised the point that he's he's still wearing a mask in school, even though uh, Virginia kids have been uh, told that they don't have to. But uh, yeah, I mean, so, you know, Glenn Youngkin, it's it's all well and good to be for um, you know public school parents' rights. He exercised his public school parents' rights in Virginia to send his kids to elite private schools uh, in Washington, uh, uh, where they received an education that you know. I mean, it, I think it's it goes too far to say that you know public schools are teaching critical race theory. Uh, you know, they're not really. It's not really an anti-racism mm-hmm. uh, curriculum. It may be a more accurate history, but uh, you know who is teaching teaching an anti-racism curriculum that really could be, you know, considered similar to critical race theory. theory. Well, that would be uh, St. Albans and the National <laughs> Cathedral School. And it's not and it's not just that he was a passive parent from uh, uh, 2016 through the end of 2019. He was on the board of governors of the National Cathedral School when they approved a, uh, a strategic plan that basically be, was the basis for implementing this anti-racist curriculum. I mean, it, you know, they're, uh, they've been very progressive on these matters, you know, going back for years. Uh, his office said, well, you know, the schools have changed over the years. And that is mm-hmm. true over the years, but they haven't changed that dramatically since he left the board. That was pretty much already baked into the cake. So, I, I mean, I 
I much prefer the parent Glenn Youngkin to the governor Glenn Youngkin because he want he wants his kids to be in an environment where they're challenged to think and maybe be uncomfortable, maybe have to grapple with divisive issues. So it seems to me that he should extend the same benefits uh, to public school kids in in Virginia, but he's going to protect them from that. So when we're talking about elite schools, these are the elite of the elite schools. You know, yes. Yeah, so these are. I mean, yeah, these are. I mean, I, do you know how much they cost to go there? I mean, it's oh, like. Yeah, for, they're uh, you, they're north of uh, forty thousand. I think. I, the, I mean, this is these are range, yeah. very Tony. And, and, and in fairness, that wasn't a big big stretch for Youngkin. He was no no no. He, <laughs> he, he, he can afford it, and, and I of course am <laughs> not a, a critic of private education, but it is interesting that these schools were quite um you know forward leaning aggressive in pushing anti racism as, as you point out that at St Albans they promote on their website books like white fragility critical mm-hmm. race theory and introduction uh, Ibram uh, Kendi's uh, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History mm-hmm. of Racist uh, Ideas. Faculty are instructed to read Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. Right. I mean, this is full frontal um, CRT stuff. Right. I mean, I mean you can argue is, what yeah, is right. or isn't. Yeah. But there, there's no argument. That is no, CRT. No. That's that's what that's the definition of it. Yeah. When you're talking about Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. I mean, this is literally the CRT. And so this is Glenn Youngkin's kid's school so but i, I it's yeah, not the ahead. first time you were, you and i have encountered hypocrisy no uh, in this it. field but that's a it's a particularly delicious one uh <laughs> it's, it's you know it's not that he was just as i said it's not just that he was a passive parent he was right there in the mix as this stuff was being put into place so look you and i could both spend all of our time just writing about hypocrisy sure. i was looking at two maps today speaking of hypocrisy and i don't want to go down the rabbit hole of gerrymandering and everything but reading this passionate denunciation of how terrible gerrymandering was and i was looking at one of the recent maps to come out of new york and another one coming mm-hmm. out of maryland i know that yeah. people hate the both sides ism argument uh-huh. but guys there's nothing new about gerrymandering, and literally, it is both political parties that are mm-hmm. doing it. Now, again, it's maybe the fact that Democrats would like to pass federal legislation. Perhaps that is the crucial distinction. But the fact is that both these parties weaponize this and have been doing it mm-hmm. for a very, very long time. Nobody's posing for holy pictures right now. Yeah, I, I agree with you for the most part uh, on that. I mean, you know, th- there are a couple of issues. One is there are more Republican-controlled states, so by definition, mm-hmm. uh, it's going to be uh, happening more there. But the the other, you know, we've heard this a, a little bit on the issue of you know super PACs and dark money, and you know, I've you've seen stuff in the Times saying, oh, the Democrats they're taking right. dark money and doing all this, but which and and I. I agree. They they shouldn't be taking dark money, but nobody, <laughs> in my view, should be taking dark money. So the question is, if this is how uh, you know the game is played uh, in the Supreme Court, whether it's you know with right. Citizens United or whether it's blessing gerrymandering, if they say this is the law of the land, you're kind of a fool if you don't do it. Sure, it, it's like being a football player and deciding that you're not going to be using the forward pass. I mean, if right. this is it, you, right. you have I to just, do it. I object to it in principle. Yeah, that's, <laughs> right. I, that, that's that's not the way we want to play the game. Well, that that's the way we play the yeah. game. So I mean, I so I guess the you know the defense for the Democrats would be saying they would they would prefer to get uh, you know get rid of dark money and they would you know prefer to get rid of uh, gerrymandering, super PACs, the whole thing. But 
they're they're playing the cards they've been dealt. But I I mean I I agree it's 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 ugly. It's ugly yeah. no, no matter who does it. Well, well, it is ugly, and I have actually changed my position on gerrymandering over the years. I kind of shrugged for a while, and now uh, I, I think it's hard not to not to recognize the degree to which it is really added to the toxicity and the tribalization of our politics because there are so few competitive districts. You know? Exactly, that's what what had happened in this in this last round. I mean, I think uh, you know Democrats were thinking, oh, they're going to you know take away all these seats from us. Republican states didn't really do that. What they've done is insulated their potentially uh, vulnerable seats so that they will be immune from challenges now and, you know, like, you know, very likely for the next decade. So uh, I, I think we're down to uh, 25, you know, seats that you could even you know, marginally say are, you know, competitive um, out of 435. And the problem is, you know, as you, as you know, it's, it's not just that they're, because they're not competitive uh, between the parties, the only thing that matters is the primary. Right. And unfortunately, the, the ones who are winning primaries now are, are whoever can, you know, shall we say, quote, Voltaire the best. Well, you know, all politics is primary politics now. I mean, that's what it's come down to is that that if you're if right. you're a Republican, it, it, it rewards the extreme. Yeah. yeah, you you don't you don't have to worry about Democrats. You don't have to worry about you know probably minorities. You don't have to worry about centrist voters. You just have to win that primary, and you win the primary by being the craziest son of a bitch on the ballot, right. as Thomas Massey famous famously yeah. once. Right. And when you say, all these guys are crazy. Well, yeah, not really. They're perfectly rational. <laughs> they're, they're doing uh, what it takes to get, to get elected and stay elected. They're, you know, they, they're playing the game properly. Yeah. I mean, you see that obviously Ohio being the most, you know, dramatic example, but I think you're seeing it played out everywhere in the country. And, you know, when people say, well, you know, when are Republicans going to speak out against the craziness? Um, well, it's when they're not looking over their shoulder, looking at a primary. Because, uh, so let, let, yeah. let's talk about the coup, the what we, we've learned about the coup. It, just, it, mm -hmm. it feels like there's this cascade of information. And I and I, and I and I don't want to just blow past it, that you have the president, the former president of the United States uh, dangling pardons for insurrectionists, seditionists, rioters. Um with the implication that anyone that commits an act of political violence um, on his behalf uh, going forward as well uh, might be taken care of. I mean, it's so, you know, part of the thing that's it's amazing is that if, if this was uncovered in tapes, secret mm -hmm. tapes, it would be the biggest <laughs> scandal ever. He just does it in public, in broad daylight. He just says, yes, you elect me and I will pardon all of you. <laughs> what the well, hell? You don't even have to elect him. You could yeah. just install him with violence and he will pardon you. You can skip the whole election thing. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's, you know, long, uh, long ago, it, it, it sort of lost its capacity to shock. And I, I suppose the shocking thing would be that if, you know, St uh, Stephen Miller or somebody else hadn't drafted executive orders saying we must seize the voting machines. Uh, but, you know, it's the environment is now that anything that comes out of that January 6th committee, you know, a large chunk of the country will be conditioned to say, ah, it's politics. I don't, uh, I don't believe any of that. So it's, we're in, you know, this bizarre 
moment where you will care about it, I will care about it, and you know, arguably, you know, half the country will care about it, but the other half is is just going to convince them that uh, uh, everything, uh, you know, all all news is fake. But it has been an astonishing avalanche of revelations. Well, 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 let me bounce this off of you because you know we we have spent the last six years going, oh my God, that's incredible, or maybe this is the turning point, or this is the breaking mm-hmm. point, and it never it never is. But the craziness is, has been ramping up. You know, Trump clearly is running for office. He has no other agenda really other than to relitigate his own, you know, gripes. He's he's, he's crazier and more reckless all the time. There are these voices out there. You have Larry Hogan out there saying that he might run for president. You have Mm -hmm. Issa Hutchinson, the governor of Arkansas, of all places, saying he shouldn't be allowed back in office. I mean, they're very much outliers. And then there are some people writing columns, you know, looking at the polls and, you know, if you squint the right way, does it look like he's maybe losing his grip on the party? I, I guess how much of that yeah. is uh, is wish casting and, and how much of that is maybe that there is kind of a, a Trump fatigue um, out there? I, what, what, do you, what do you think? <laughs> I, you know, here's how I'd, I'd look at it is there may or may not be a Trump fatigue, but it's almost beside the point because it's Trumpism. There, there doesn't appear to be any fatigue there. No. Uh, you know, if you look at uh, DeSantis, you know, or even if you look at Youngkin, I mean, Trump himself, I mean, arguably would be less of a threat because he's more bumbling uh, than a DeSantis. I mean, you know, Trump did not succeed with some of his worst instincts simply because of, of incompetence. So the fact that, you know, uh, w- there are tip lines in Virginia to uh, report on uh, your teachers uh, coming from this, you know, mainstream, what I think previously would have been viewed as a moderate uh, a businessman. I mean, that to me is more alarming than, you know, the perfectly, you know, to be expected pronouncements out of Trump about pardoning the violent. It, it, it huh. seems to me that it's, it's, it's just taken over. So yeah, we, you know, for five, six years, we thinking this would finally be the moment, but I think it's pretty obvious that that moment is not going to come. Uh, it's, there's, it's, there's no critical mass left to, uh, to make that moment happen. No, I, I, I agree with that take. Now, I, I have confessed that maybe I don't have the clearest view of this because I still suffer from PTSD. And so we'll never <laughs> underestimate the, the, the craziness or, or indulge in irrational hopes and, and expectations. But you know, even when you look at these polls and so he may be under 50%, but he's still at 40%. Look, you need an overt act to take him down. Tim Miller had a great piece yesterday. Look, at some point, some Republicans in key positions are going to have to be willing to take some political pain mm-hmm. to be able to push back, to, to do something about it. And I don't know that they're willing to, to commit those overt acts to stop him. But you raise an interesting question here, which I don't think I've thought through completely. Are you feeling right now that in some ways, well, I think you just said this, that in some ways a more competent Trumpist is actually scarier than the real thing? than Trump would, himself because because Trump we know is kind of bumbling and incompetent and crazy and known quantity so are you saying that some, the the right. the next generation might be worse than him well, I th- I think so I mean you know and because Trump is uh, you know, vulgar and sort of a buffoon. So, so some people who might even like some of the uh, uh, more authoritarian instincts just don't like the, the mannerisms. But, you know, think about somebody 
like DeSantis, uh, who I think is much smarter <laughs> than Donald Trump is. Uh, um, you know, I mean, I think he's 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 setting up or you know proposing to set up this special police force, reporting only to him, that will be you know have uh, free reign. It sounds like to rove around uh, polling places, uh, you know, and you know just looking for some you know problems or irregularities. But you know, obviously, anybody looking at this would know that that's uh, all about uh, voter intimidation. Um, it, you know. So I, I think something like that is more dangerous. I think, you know, that there's somebody who potentially, you know, could have the charisma of Trump, but sort of the the, uh, the brains of Stephen Miller. That's the, I think that's much more. I mean, Trump, Trump is a known commodity and there's, uh, you know, there's built in opposition to him by, you know, arguably a majority of the American public. So I don't want to be out here saying, boy, I really hope Donald Trump is the Republican nominee, but uh uh, well, the, the the other point is leaving aside the personalities. I mean, the the forces that have been unleashed. You know, it, it is like they thought it was a controlled burn, and now it's turned into this massive conflagration that that no individual can actually control anymore, and it's taking on bizarre different forms. And I'm not sure that that even Trump. Well, I know that. I mean, Trump himself knows that he can't get too far uh, out ahead of that. That mm-hmm. of you know his own people and or any other political figure out there. And you've seen this on you know issue after issue. So the the unleashing of what, for lack of a better term, we could call Trumpism. We may need to come up with some some different mm-hmm. term for for that at some point. I think that's become more virulent, and uh, he disappears from the political scene tomorrow, and. That does not go away. We don't have a return to normalcy. Uh, again, no. th- this this feels like an old, old story. But I mean, your, your thoughts, Susan Collins, who's voted once in the second impeachment, you know, she, she's not up for another six years. She's asked on on Sunday morning television, you know, would you close the door to, you know, to supporting him? She can't answer the question. Mm-hmm. I mean, if Susan Collins, I mean, that just seems to me to be such a canary in the coal mine. If Susan Collins, who is moderate and reasonable and always concerned about everything, who's actually voted to convict mm-hmm. him, if even she can't say that the morning after he dangles pardons, then right. I, what? No, what yeah, are we well, I, and I had that same sense after Lamar Alexander yeah. uh, announced his retirement. Like, well, what's he got to lose? I right. mean, yeah, you know Lamar Alexander. He can't possibly be on board with this. <laughs> I, I mean, my my feeling is that because this is where even the country club uh, Republican base has gone, where the Chamber of Commerce uh, base has gone. I think uh, they these individual uh, leaders, these individual figures. Uh, it's not just sort of. It's not really even primarily uh, political blowback. I think it's social blowback. You know, it would be like the approbation of uh, your peers. Uh, you know, they see how uh, Jeff Flake uh, became a pariah. They see uh, Liz Cheney and uh, Kinzinger, and they don't want that to happen to them. Not, you know, not just from their colleagues in, in Congress, but from their uh, friends and, and supporters at home. Uh, I mean, that, I, that's what I'm I, guessing I, is happening. No, I, I, I don't think you should underestimate that at all. Now, speaking of uh, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, uh, the RNC is going to be taking up a resolution, apparently being pushed by Trump ally David uh, Bossie, uh to expel them from the Republican Party, to uh, you know formally call on the House conference to expel them. And that's going to be up at the RNC committee. My level of surprise, if that passed, would be 
two on a scale <laughs> right. of, of one to one hundred. What <laughs> right? I was right. Um, uh, yeah, and I, I, you know what? I, I haven't investigated this, but when I saw this, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, who who has that weapon been used against in history? I mean, was it used against McCarthy? I, he was censured. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, like what, you know, who else has been deserving of this, uh, you know, political death penalty uh, in history? I think it might be worth. And the obsession uh, with it. it. It's not just that you can denounce them or criticize them. Um, you, you have to keep upping the ante. You have to keep driving them out, making it very clear that we're going to excommunicate you. And and again, I know this is getting old, but I, I just find it so ironic that the the explanation we heard from uh, from all the cool kids was, well, uh, you know, Liz Cheney needed to be removed from leadership because she just wouldn't move on. She just mm-hmm. kept talking about that election and we need to move on to <laughs> be forward facing. And then you right. look at everything that's happened now. Donald Trump will absolutely not let them move on. <laughs> he is not moving on, people. Uh, right. No, we're not moving on. Although, the, you know, the truth is even expulsion by the RNC would be pretty benign compared to what Newt Gingrich has proposed. He wants to see them locked up. What is with yeah. Newt Gingrich? What's your take? <laughs> I mean, you've watched him for years. I have. I've got a you know a book coming out uh, in 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 August on you know starting Ooh. with the Republican Revolution of uh, you know Gingrich's in '94. You know, and I, I'm obviously not the first to say this, but I think he paved the way for a lot of uh, what we're what we're seeing today. But uh, I, I you know he he quickly embraced uh, Trump early on, and look, I mean he's no idiot. He he sees where the party is, and he wants to be out uh, leading that parade rather than trying to turn it into another direction so yeah um, I, you know i mean it's it's his way of staying relevant and you know i mean he got to be uh husband of the uh, ambassador to the holy see so so he must be doing something right yeah n- well newt New gingrich is one of those figures you you know I, I look i look back on you know what happened and you, you think of you know with sarah palin being an inflection point uh, newt gingrich being an inflection point all of these things and and yet it's hard to have predicted at the time that it was going to end up this particular way. But mm-hmm. yeah, the, the fact that he, he, he not only suggests expelling them, but, but throwing them in prison, it's just amazing. <laughs> so oh, before I, I, I was going to mention this before, and I wanted to uh, double back on this since we were talking about elections and lying about elections. Uh, obviously, the Democrats are not going to get their voting rights bills uh, through. Yes, um, but that's also a, a level of, two on the surprise scale of 100. Right. But there is a lot of speculation about this bipartisan gang working on fixing the Electoral Count Act. Mm-hmm. They have nine Republicans. They don't have 10 yet, mm-hmm. uh, but they are working on, you know, fixing that bill, which in a rational world would be the lowest of lowest hanging fruit. Fix that screwed up piece of legislation. What do you think? Politico was saying that the Biden White House is keeping hands off, that they are completely AWOL. Uh, they don't want to have anything to do with it. A lot of Democrats are worried that somehow this is a bipartisan trap. Mm-hmm. But if, if they can't fix the Electoral Count Act, I mean, really? Well, I mean, I, I could see the standoffishness at first because they didn't want it as an excuse yeah. not to do anything else. But I think it's it's pretty clear that, you know, that ship has sailed. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a very minor fix to uh, prevent an exact repeat of what happened uh, last time, uh, which would, wouldn't stop a, a similar thing from happening in any number of other ways. But uh, but sure, why not? It's better than not doing anything. 
Yeah, um, that seems that so. seems to me to be pretty clear. So, give me your take on 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 Joe Biden right now. We're now more than a year into his presidency. I think he started off with a lot of uh, projected optimism about mm-hmm. what kind of a president he would be, what kind of agenda he would have. And yet here we are, and of course, uh, the polls and the conventional wisdom kind of line up that he's he's in a world of hurt. Yeah, I think he is. I think anybody would have been. And, you know, Charlie, when you look at, you know, you could step back and say, hey, you know, we just had the strongest economic growth since, you know, morning in America, 1984. And yeah, inflation is is higher um, than it was then, but not, you know, not not hugely so. But the mood of the nation is dramatically different. And, you know, of course, some of that's this, you know, never ending uh, pandemic. But I also I I just think that the political culture that has been uh, created means there's a ceiling for uh, Biden or for anybody else. It's, you know, going to be somewhere around 50 percent, low 50s in approval. Uh, There's probably a floor uh, of 30 percent, you know, on, you know, somebody on on either side. And then, you know, it's it's sort of approval will be the, the few sort of persuadable people in the middle. But uh, look, it's uh, he gets terrible press. He has been ineffective. I don't think that's a statement on Biden. I think it's a statement mm. that, that that everything is broken. I do not suppose that if he said started from the very beginning saying, I, you know, I just let me just sit down with Mitch McConnell and see what we can get done, that that he'd be sitting on any accomplishment uh, that he's not sitting on now. So are you saying that that no one can be a success, that we were just in an era now where we're just not going to ever have a successful president or, or not ever, but, but that, that no one could succeed into this, in this environment? That that's my sense. Um, uh, you know, certainly nobody's going to be popular the way even you know a, a, a George W. Bush was, um, or you know even a, even an Obama briefly. was early. Yeah, briefly, yeah. right. I mean, they, they've all been brief, but uh, yeah. um, or you know, I mean, you know, think about you know Bill Clinton. You know, during impeachment, he he, they, he had very he had very low favorability ratings, but he had very high job approval ratings because people reacted to the economy. You know, now people react to the economy based on the party you're in and you know we have an election that changes and everybody completely changes their uh their view of the economy and you know you can see it now and you know if you look at actual uh spending you know purchasing people are feeling pretty good uh if you look at it in the aggregate but if you ask people how things are they say it's terrible um so i think bad mood that's a reaction to uh the culture Um, okay so so this is the culture, and I'm, I'm going to call up a tweet that I wanted to get your reaction to. If, it, if it's you know, a more I'm, Voltaire, I, I don't want no, to hear it. It, no, it, it's not. It's not. It's, <laughs> it's Mark Twain. Or, or allegedly Vol- <laughs> Voltaire, yes. Nate Cohn tweeted out a couple of hours ago, deservedly or not, the public lost confidence in the Biden administration's competence and leadership in August. The country has had an adrift and hopeless feel since then with no sense of direction back to normalcy, et cetera. And that's what's holding back economic confidence. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I mean, obviously we have the pandemic, we have inflation, we have other issues, but it did feel that the fiasco in Afghanistan broke something and we never came back from that. 
I think, well, certainly that was a fiasco. I don't, I, I don't dispute that at all. I don't think Americans are thinking at all about Afghanistan. Now, maybe mm-hmm. it left them with a, a sense of, of bumbling, but that was also the Delta wave, yeah. uh, you know, which we'd never quite got out of, and then the, the Omicron wave. So I think it was, I, I think the honeymoon that Biden enjoyed was when it looked like, hey, we're getting, we're getting out of this pandemic. So I, I think that's the largest piece that has dragged it down. You know, as, as opposed to an economic one, although it obviously has uh, an economic effect as well. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's why I, I, you know, I think regardless of who was in office was going to be pretty much trashed by that uh, series of events. Now, maybe because he's been so low for so long, he can't recover, even if the pandemic goes away. I mean, that that remains to be seen. But I mean, you know, even if, you know, inflation were running at one and a half percent and we had, you know, annual GDP growth of five percent, if you are watching Fox News, you are certainly not going to think the economy is in good shape. No. And they're not going to emphasize that. No. Yeah. So I don't, I, I, you know, I don't really see how that would, I, I think it's almost impervious to whatever's, whatever's happening in the economy. It is interesting, uh, and, and you've written about this uh, before. Uh, you know how, how effective Fox can be in you know putting forth a negative, you know, a, a negative narrative about uh, you know anything. You know, for example, the you know the the pounding on Joe Biden for you know wanting to you know, use the FBI to investigate parents and all of this that he was you know that all of that, but also the way that they have really weaponized his age. And this has been something they've just pounded and pounded. And I spent a little bit of time in conservative media and how that that is sort of the background noise to everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so but when you start to see weakness, it, mm-hmm. you know, you know what I'm saying? They they yeah. they have they have created that this template so that every time he stumbles that you might not have noticed before. Suddenly right. it's like, uh-huh, OK, this is what I've been hearing. You know, it, 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 it plays yes. to this and, and they have really pounded this. And well, and it works. I mean, you're seeing yes, it. I mean, it I does. see it in my emails, and you, I mean, you see it not just uh, on the right now, but on you know independent voters, and I think even uh, Democratic uh, voters are worried about his age. And yeah, I mean, it, it, you you can see exactly how it happens. The guy, as as you know, you know, has a stutter, and you can see when he is having trouble with a word, and he sort of shuts his eyes and blinks. Um, well, yeah. uh, he's, he's trying to pronounce the word and those of us who've watched Joe Biden in you know, the eighties and nineties and aughts know that this is the exact same guy, uh, we were watching then, um, who would, you know, put in his, put his foot in his mouth, uh, repeatedly and say all kinds of ill-advised things. So, uh, but yes, now it's, uh, it's been put through the lens of being a result of his age. Now, I, I mean, I think it's entirely possible that, you know, he's not, uh, you know, I look. I'm in my 50s, and I'm not as sharp as I was. So I, it wouldn't surprise me at all if he's not as uh, sharp as he once was. But like, he held a news conference for an hour and three quarters. Yeah. Okay. Well, he kind of gave away Ukraine for a yeah. minute there. It was a, it was a bad moment there. <laughs> but just for a brief minute. But uh, I mean, you know, somebody who is uh, in 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 the grips of uh, dementia could not get through an hour and three quarter news conference. No, see, I see, I, I agree with with Will Salatin on this. I, I I don't think that he has dementia. I don't think he's losing mental. But but you know, he's slowing down in his ability to uh, express himself. And again, anyone who reaches a certain age recognizes that. Doesn't yeah. mean he's not going to make the right decisions or the doesn't understand the issues but it's a it's a it's a pr problem so since we started off with thomas massey tweeting Mm -hmm. 
So Massey tweets about Voltaire. He's quoting the Nazi pedophile instead. And then he continues, of course, tweeting because he wants that sweet, sweet dopamine hit of Twitter likes. Mm-hmm. And um, just yesterday, he retweeted Matt Gates, who tweeted, thus begins another week of the silver alert presidency. <laughs> so you have congressmen tweeting and then retweeting sort of snide silver alert presidency jokes. So mm-hmm. we see where where this goes. And I, there's I, an obvious joke to be made when you said that he tweeted a, a pedophile and then he tweeted Matt Gates, but I'm not going there. <laughs> we wouldn't want to do that. Because <laughs> we would not. We wouldn't want, we wouldn't would want to prejudge. <laughs> maybe it's just he figures, okay, so this guy, maybe a neo-Nazi arrested for child pornography, but Matt Gates, eh, she was 17. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. We could have gone on for another four hours here, but I really appreciate you coming back on the podcast. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it greatly. Thank you, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. We will do this all over again. <laughs>